So if you'll give me the next slide, um, we're going to start the book of Romans this morning. And I like the book of Romans for many reasons, one of which it's Paul basically taking all he knows about the Christian faith, all that he's learned in his own personal walk with the Lord, and he's penning it down to paper because he doesn't know whether or not he's going to get to go to Rome, but he knows his heart's desire is to go to Rome and encourage the church that's already started there. I find that interesting because Paul has been all over the known world at that time. We just got done studying the book of Acts where we saw he traveled quite a bit of miles. His first missionary journey was about 1,400 miles. His second was about 2,800 miles. His third was about 2,900 miles. And then finally, at the end of the book of Acts, he is put on trial for something he didn't do according to the will of God so that he can go and present the gospel before just about every provincial and government, uh, governor uh, and every king. And he eventually goes to Caesar Nero there in the capital of the Roman Empire in Rome. So he presents the gospel in all those places, but he writes this book in the context of the book we just studied, Acts, on his third missionary journey while he's at Corinth for about a year and a half to two years. So at the end of the book of Acts that we just finished last week, he ended up in Rome, but when he writes the book of Romans, he hasn't been there yet. He won't actually arrive in Rome for three years after he writes this book. So that's the context. We need to remember that. He hasn't been there. He hasn't ever met anybody there. But he's heard in all of his travels all over the known world at that time, he's heard of this church that's already been started in Rome. So many times we think of the new churches that were started in the book of Acts and we think about all of them. We're like, man, Paul must have started that thing. But Paul had never been to Rome at this point. There was already a church there. And I love that because it reminds me that the kingdom of God is always bigger than one man or woman. God uses many people, and sometimes we can only see what one person is being used for. Case in point, uh, think about a guy like Billy Graham. He's gone all over the world and he's preached the gospel. Now his son, Franklin, is still continuing to do that. But outside of what Billy and Franklin, Franklin have been used by God to do, there are many other people that no one will ever know about this side of heaven that have already planted church in different areas that they've never been. So I love that. The body of Christ growing, the kingdom of God taking one heart at a time. We think about it on a large scale like one city or one town or one county at a time, but God takes and builds the kingdom of God one brick at a time and living stones one person at a time. And so Paul writes this letter desiring to see people and encourage people he's never met. And in the beginning remarks that he makes, we'll see why. So in Romans chapter 1, he begins by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now first of all, I want to point out how much of a run-on sentence that is. That is like the longest sentence I think I've ever seen. But then he says, through him, meaning through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and the apostleship for obedience to the faith 
among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And then he says there in verse 7 who he's writing to. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts out by telling us who's writing the letter. And we think about writing a letter, we write at the very end, sincerely, or you know, whatever your farewell is, and then you say your name. But in that day, to write a letter was not just a piece of eight and a half by eleven where you can just, you know, maybe if there's multiple pages go to the end and go, oh, it's from so-and-so. In that day, they would write them on scrolls. And so to unroll the entire scroll and go to the end would take a lot of work. So rather than writing it at the end, you basically write it at the top. You say, this is who it's from, this is who I'm writing to, and here's the subject. And that's what Paul's doing. He's given us the subject. It's more like an email that we write. Nowadays, we write an email. We, we don't have to type who it's from. It sends from us. When the person gets it, they go, hey, I got an email. Here's the person that wrote it. Here's the subject line. And here's maybe a little blurb of what they started to write. And a summary. And so Paul, before email, before text message, he's got paper on a scroll that he's writing a letter to these people with. And I want you to notice how Paul introduces himself. He doesn't start out by saying, Paul, a guy who God is magnificently using. He doesn't start out by saying, Paul, an apostle. He doesn't start out by saying, Paul, a guy who's personally met Jesus. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I love that because Paul is writing to an audience in Rome that is mostly slaves. Now, we don't get that because we think of a nation that might have some slaves that they probably have less slaves than they do citizens. But in the nation of Rome at that time, in the empire of Rome at that time, they had, citizen-wise, about 7 to 8 million people, somewhere around that. Don't, you know, don't say, hey, you know, you're a million off, because I, I don't know exactly, but historians tell us that there was around... Six to seven to eight million people that were citizens, not not people with green cards, not people that had you know were passing through, but citizens, people that were able to vote, people that had rights, and Paul was one of those. So he could have said, "Paul, a citizen of Rome," but he doesn't. He says, "Paul, a bondservant." Now, in contrast to the amount of citizens that they had, they had about sixty to 70 million slaves. So about 10% of that number are citizens. It's way more of them that are slaves. So Paul writing this to the church in Rome makes an assumption that probably more of the people in the church are probably slaves than actual Roman citizens. So he boasts in his being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now we don't think about that because most of us are not Slaves, right? But we are bond servants, whether we realize it or not. Uh, even in secular society, say you got a job, you're working for somebody, you're a bond slave. And I'll make that correlation here in a minute. In Exodus chapter 21, we see in the beginning of the nation of Israel, God writes down how to deal with this group of people that are bond slaves. In Exodus chapter 21, 
Yeah. Exodus 21. He writes a precept in the law for the Jewish nation. He says in verse 1, Now these are the judgments which you shall see, which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, one of your own people, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will, know, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall bring him to the door, or the doorpost, sorry, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So in that day, you had this, basically, people got in debt just like they do now. They bought too much, and then they couldn't make the payments. And so what they would do is if someone was in hard times and they didn't have the money to pay their debts, they would sell themselves as a servant to someone within their nation, someone that had the money to pay their debts. And they would basically say, hey, I need this money, and in re return for it, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to serve you for a time. See, God set it up to where if you were a debtor to someone, you could only be a debtor for six years. And on the seventh, they were to let you go free, as if your debt was paid. Even if you hadn't worked as much as they thought you should, they could only keep you for six years. Now, many times what would happen is that person being a bond or being a slave of that other person, at the end of the six years, their master would say to them, you can go free now, your debt is paid. And what they would do is if they had it way better with that master as their slave, they could turn around and say, I know you've given me my freedom and I can go now, but because I've had it way better living under your roof than I ever did, as a slave to myself, basically, living in my own rules. So I've had it way better with you. Instead of being free, I want to basically give my life to serve you. You've been better to me than my, the rest of my life. And so because you've treated me so well, I want to turn around, and not because I have to anymore, but because I love you, I care for you. You've cared for me in such a way that I can't look away. I want to stay with you. So they would basically say, I want to pledge my life to be a bond slave. No longer because I have to because of debt, but because as a free will offering, I want to, I want to serve you. And now we don't get that. We don't want to serve anybody. We want our freedoms. But these men or women, they, they would say, hey, uh, I got it way better off with you. And so because of that, they would turn to their master and say, I want to stay with you because I want to. And they would walk up to them, tell them that. They would take them out to the door. They would put their ear against the door and they would take it all and they would drive a hole and put an earring in their ear. And that would signify, kind of like our wedding bands, when we'd say we're married, we wear a wedding ring. That would signify to all the rest of the world, I'm this guy's bond slave. I'm his free will slave. I serve him out of my own accord because he takes such good care of me. And so when Paul says, 
I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ has taken care of all my needs. I have no needs. I'm way better off serving him than I ever was without him. I'm going to free will give my life to him. And he's placed an earring basically on my ear. I'm his. I'm pledging my life to serve him. Not because I have to, but because I want to. That was Paul's boast. I'm God's slave. I'm his servant. The life that I now live is no longer mine, but it's his to dictate where it goes. So he starts out by saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now to these slaves that are listening, they're going, I get what he's saying. I know exactly where he's at. He, he, is, he loves his relationship with the Lord. So then he says, <clears throat> after he says, I'm a bond slave of Jesus, he says, I've been called to be an apostle. An apostle is, in that day, was a messenger for a king, a sent one. And so he's a sent one for Jesus. He's been separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel that he's been presenting and this teaching that he's giving is not something that he came up with on his own, but these are things that were told, foretold in the Old Testament that would come to pass. And so Paul's now just an apostle delivering the message of how it did come to pass. And the kingdom of God has come and Jesus Christ did die. He was buried. He did resurrect. He's a living savior. And God foretold it in this scripture. Verse three, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Jesus Christ is his name, kind of. But I was watching a kid's show yesterday and it was like a Bible teaching. And he said, Jesus Christ, you know, because Christ is his last name. And, and the people that were teaching these puppets, because there was a puppet show, basically, they said, no, no, Jesus is his name, Yeshua, Joshua's kind of our rendering means that our God saves. And then Christ is the title. It's his, um, basically it's what he would put on his business card if he had business cards. Um, Jesus Christ, our God saves. And then Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. If you remember in the Old Testament, when David came up and he was anointed by the prophet, it signified that he was the one that God chose to be the king of the nation of Israel. Jesus Christ, Joshua, Christ, Messiah, is the one that God chose, he anointed, to be the king of the kingdom of God. He's also the heir. He's the son of God. And so, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Lord is something different than Christ. Lord means king, ruler, master. So we have three different ways that God is referred to. Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. I love this because this is fulfilling a promise. To say that he was born according to the seed of David says that he is actually the rightful heir to the throne of God. The throne over the nation of Israel. See, David was a king. And his descendants after him had to be blood relation. And the only way that they had the right to take over the throne was to be a descendant of David. And so for a Messiah to come and claim that he's the king of Israel, 
means that he has to be a descendant of David. And so we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel seven verse eight. In verse eight it says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, and he's speaking directly to David here, God through the prophet. He says, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, a direct descendant, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So obviously God was going to give David a direct descendant. That was Solomon. He was a king of peace. And God would set up, build literally a, a physical house where they would go and worship God. But there's coming a time where I will give you a descendant from your own body. He will be a blood relative who will be the king forever. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know that 100% of people, they die. So how can you set up a kingdom that will last forever? And they will no longer be oppressed by their enemies. The nation of Israel, when they were set up as a kingdom, they had to fight, they had to persecute, they had to avoid the oppression, they had to stay away from idols, and they didn't do that. They were over and over again given to idols. They would worship things that were not God. And to this day, they do not follow the king that God gave them. But what Paul is writing here here is is that according to the seed of David, there will be one who will be raised up according to the flesh. And then he says in verse 4, back in Romans chapter 1, "...and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness." By the resurrection from the dead. So he will be 100% a descendant of David, of the flesh. And then according to the spirit of holiness, he will be the son of God. I love this because right there you have specifically Paul writing that that Jesus was the son of God. 
an heir to the throne physically, but also a son of God, a direct heir to God's kingdom. And so he's 100% man, 100% God. And accord, this is all according to the Old Testament. And then verse 5, he says, Through him, meaning Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. He says, the authority that I have to write this very letter to you doesn't come from man, but it comes from God. And he says there, through him we have received grace, number one, not getting what we do deserve. We've received grace, forgiveness of sin. He'll kind of expound upon that later. And then he says, we've also received apostleship. We've been sent by him according to his plan for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. If you are a Christian, you've been called by his grace, you've been forgiven, and you've been given apostleship. Now, you're not an apostle like Paul is, or like John, or like Peter. They were specific people at a specific time that were given direct revelation from God to write the scriptures. They had authority. They had met the resurrection Lord, Jesus Christ. But we've also in the same way, been called to be apostles. Not in the same way, but in a different way. And we've been called to be apostles, meaning that we are sent to give the good news. So, it's not just guys like Paul, Peter, James, John that were sent out to share the gospel, but it's us as well. In the same way, he says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So then he says, to all, here's who I'm writing this letter to. He's got three groups in mind. Number in verse seven, to all who are in Rome, meaning every person that's in Rome, I'm writing this. He says, beloved of God, meaning those who are already Christians, called to be saints. So I love this because he's writing to all who are in Rome. We know that, the people that are there. He's writing to the ones who are in Rome who are specifically Christians, and he's writing to those who are called to be saints. He's talking to a group, many of them don't believe, many of them do believe, and there are some that are like right on the brink of making a decision to follow Christ. Do you know that there are still people today that meet this description? Now, obviously we're not in Rome, but this is written to us as well, to the beloved of God. That's what God calls us, his beloved. If you've ever read the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, he, he refers to his bride as his beloved. And that's kind of the direct correlation between God and his relationship with the church. If those who are called of God are his beloved. We've celebrated uh, Valentine's Day yesterday. And Valentine's Day, we, we set a time, apart some time to express to our loved ones that we love them, especially our husbands and wives. And we, we tell them, hey, I love you. You are the only one for me. I've chosen to forsake all others to devote my life to loving you. And so Paul is writing to God's beloved. He's forsaking all others, setting apart to love those who he's chosen. Now, we think of, well, that's many people. That's weird. But the church, the body of Christ, 
with Jesus as the head and all of us being members of the body of Christ, like an arm or a leg or a toe, we all encapsulate, all of us put together, assembled in one place, we encapsulate the person, the church, that God is redeeming and has redeemed, has called out of the world and into his love. And so Paul is saying, I'm writing to all who are in Rome, the beloved of God and those who are called to be saints. Those who have been called and they've accepted the call and those who are still called but they haven't received or accepted the call yet. I'm writing to all of them. And then he tells them his salutation. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this because he's writing to a mixed group here. He's writing to Jews and he's writing to Gentiles. Most of us in here are probably Gentiles. But he says to them the common greetings of that day. Grace, the word in Greek meaning, or the word in Greek is charis, Greece. I can't even talk. Grace and peace. Charis and shalom. The Jewish word for peace is shalom. So he says, grace and peace. He was greeting both groups using the same sentence. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been sent by them, and I bring to you grace, and I bring to you peace. And uh, I heard one guy that I've listened to for a long time, Chuck Smith, he says that grace, and, and he passed, but he would always say grace and peace. The Siamese twins of the New Testament. Grace, because we've all experienced un, God's unmerited favor towards us, and peace because you can't experience the peace of God until you first receive the grace of God. If you don't experience peace in your life, perhaps you haven't experienced the grace of God and realizing what you've been forgiven. And so he always says grace before he says peace because you can't experience peace until you've received God's grace. So now that he's done with his introduction, he moves on and he starts to address the group. He says, first of all, verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Another one of those really long sentences. He says, first, I thank God for you. And let me say that when people come in the doors and they're hungry for the word of God, I thank God for them. Whether there's two or whether there's 40 or whether there's 100 or 200. The reality is, is anytime someone is hungry for the word of God and is gathering regularly with other Christians, I'm thankful for them. Anybody that comes in the doors, I pray for you. I'm thankful to God that he's opened up your eyes and, and let you know how much he loves you. And it's causing your lives to change and it's making an effect on all those around you, whether you realize it or not. But he says to them a very personal greeting. He says, I thank the Lord whom I serve for you. We think of Paul and we just got done studying the book of Acts. Paul is this hard charging missionary. And it seems like he never stops, like he never stops to take a moment to receive and to, to feel the breeze and to just appreciate people for who they are. But Paul wasn't like that. 
we kind of get the, the footnotes version of his missionary journeys, and we get a couple of highlights. But what we don't see, and what we will see in the letters that he writes to them, is that he had very personal thoughts towards them. And I love that because we kind of get this wrong idea even about God. We think, well, he's God over all of creation. He's created the heavens and the earth, and, and, and he's overseeing every one of the people that are alive. He's in, intricately involved in their lives. Maybe he doesn't have time for me. Maybe you've thought about that. You've got many people in your families, and some of you might even have some guilt. Sometimes you feel like, I don't have enough time to know every single person I'm related to. Or maybe even every person that's in your house. You know, you feel like, I'm overwhelmed. And you start to think about, man, I'm too busy to be intricately involved in every one of these people's lives. Because I've only got so much time. But what I love is that we need to remember that God's not like us. He's not constrained by time. He, he's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's able to be in every place at all times. And he's also able to work in all places at all times. And I, I can't get my mind around that, but I know it's true because he calls on all of us to worship together as a group and receive our praises. And you think, well, if I'm praying while he's singing, do I got to wait in line? But no, he can receive them. He can deal with each person individually at all times. And I love that because you and I don't have anybody in our lives that always has time for us. But God always does. He's always able to be there when maybe somebody else isn't. And so, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. I have very personal feelings for you all. But he has very personal feelings for them, even though he's never met them. I love that. Here's why. Verse 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his sons, that without... Uh, his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. He had a heart for these people because he prayed for them. He says, I pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that Paul just basically holed himself off in a closet and prayed all the time, never ate anything, never talked to anybody. That meant that when God would lay somebody on his heart, he'd pray for them. When he was driving to work, we, he didn't have a car, but when he was on the road walking to different places, he was able to pray for them. He wasn't always able to be there for them, but he knew that God could, and so he relied upon God to be their God. We don't have to be people's God. We don't have to be there for people all the time. Sometimes all we got is a few moments to breathe their name in a prayer and say, Lord, be with them, bless them, encourage them. And he can do that. But because of his prayer for the saints there in Rome, he desired to see them, to be with them, to see what God was doing in their lives. He says, I'm making request, verse 10, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now, Paul's praying for this, but remember, we just finished the book of Acts. God's will was for him to be able to go and encourage them, but the will of God for him to get there was not a comfortable will. God's will for the, him to go and visit them meant that he was going to suffer persecution, false accusation, imprisonment, and shipwreck. That's how God brought him to the Romans. So when he's saying, I'm praying that if it could be any way that I could get to them, Lord, let your will be done. 
And I guarantee he did not know that it was God's will that he would go through all the stuff he did at the end of the book of Acts so that he could be there. But he was praying, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. I want to see them. I want to impart to them some spiritual gift. And he continues in verse 11. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Paul is a builder. He is someone who is a carpenter. He's someone who's a plumber. He pours foundations. And I love this because we don't think about it that way. We think, oh, he's a Bible teacher. He's an evangelist. The house of God is not a building. It's made of people. The house of God is a group of people that God has set apart for his service. And what Paul saw his mission as was someone who would come along, use the gifts that God gave him to encourage and build up the body of Christ. Now, he wasn't going to put in an extra truss where there was a sagging ceiling. What he was going to do is he was going to teach them the basic principles of a relationship with God so that they would be strengthened in their faith. And so that would be their foundation. Paul was someone who would come along and he would see someone who was sinning, someone who was being shaken by the circumstances of their life. And he would come in, he would say, hey, God loves you. Let me impart to you something that he's taught me. And maybe God would use him to basically tear down the foundation of that person's life to bust up the the bad concrete or blocks And then he would dig down and he would say, hey, let God dig in your life down to the bedrock and then lay a foundation. But sometimes we think, well, I just want to add God to the foundation that I already have in my life. And what God says is, your foundation stinks. And I love you enough to tell you that. So instead of starting by building, I'm going to have to tear you down first. Paul knew this from experience because Paul, on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, God shone a light that overwhelmed him and humbled him, knocked him down on the ground, and the the Lord spoke to him. He said, Saul, because he was called Saul at that time, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul answered, he said, who are you, Lord? And then he said something else. He said, what do you want me to do, Lord? See, Saul was pretty proud of himself. He was a Pharisee. He was... Uh, He knew everything about the faith. He'd been taught by the best Jewish rabbis. And so he was very proud of his following the faith. But when he realized on the road to Damascus, hey, your foundation, what you've built your life on, being righteous and showing off and and, and persecuting my people, uh, you think you're following me, but you're actually, you're against me, Paul. And so he responded, he said, Lord, who are you? Because I thought I knew you, but apparently I don't. And then he said, what do you want me to do? Where do I start? If I'm screwing up, if my whole life leading up to this point has been wrong, then I need you to teach me something else because this is all I know. And so he did. He said, why don't you go to the street called Straight? I'm going to have a man there and he'll tell you what to do. So he went. Now, Paul was blinded by that light. He was blinded by the light, you know. Not in that way, but God blinded him so he'd see his own spiritual blindness and he had to take the people that were with him on this journey and they had to lead him. Paul thought himself a leader and God said, you know what, I'm going to blind you and I'm going to make it so you have to be led. I want you to learn to follow me, not to drag my people. 
out of their homes. And so he took him to Damascus where he was going to persecute people. And he took Ananias, one of the Christian believers there, and he said, Ananias, I want you to welcome him into the faith. And so the first thing that Ananias said to Saul, the persecutor of the church, everyone feared Saul. He was told by God, Ananias, he said, I want you to, I want you to speak nice things. I want you to encourage Saul. He's been humbled. I get it. You're scared. Trust me in this. And so what he did, is his first word, anybody in the Christian church said to Saul after his conversion was, Brother Saul, not, hey, you jerk, not, hey, sinner. He said, Brother Saul, welcome. I love you. God's given me a word to share with you, and I want to impart it to you. So now, here we are, years down the road, Saul's Paul now, and he's, he's teaching the Christian church, he's planting churches all over the place. And when he writes to the Romans, he says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you can be strengthened in your faith. And I love this because he's imparting to people what he was first imparting. A Christian had to encourage Paul before Paul ever became Paul. So Paul said, hey, that's how God built me. Maybe I could give that back to the Lord and, and let him use that. Maybe I can just speak to, a word to the Romans. Maybe I can do something to encourage their faith. But also notice that Paul recognized that not only did he have something to offer the body of Christ in Rome, but he also recognized something that I think we forget if we're not in ministry. That the people that God was imparting these things to, he recognized that he was going to receive something from them when he got there too. Sometimes we think, hey, I'm going to go to church and get something, and God's saying, I've got something for you to give the church. Now, unfortunately, we have televangelists that are saying, send money. I'm not saying that. What Paul is saying here is, maybe I can receive something from you that will encourage me and build up my faith. He says there in verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and of me. Paul's saying, the faith that we're following, that Jesus Christ is in you and I. He's given us his Holy Spirit and he's given us gifts because of that so that we can serve one another. The Christian life is not about what the pastor has to give. It's about what the body of Christ has to give. Now the pastor or the worship leader or whoever it is that you think, the evangelist, they do have gifts to serve the body of Christ, but so do you. It may not be a gift that's up front, it may be a gift of service or hospitality. You may have the gift of hospitality where you open your home, you have people over and you feed them food. And some people are like, well, that's not very spiritual. But sometimes it takes, most of the time, it takes blessing somebody practically so that they can have their eyes open to their spiritual need. God does that all the time. The first time that I went to church, it wasn't because I wanted church. It was because I was lonely. Being lonely is very horrible thing. We don't like it. And so somebody invited me to church and I thought, well, I'm alone. I'm just going to be sitting in my house tonight. I would love to be around people. And when I got there, I realized that my loneliness was the least of my troubles. I needed salvation. I needed saved from my sin. I was stooped in it. And the Lord cleansed me by getting to know the people. And because I got to know the people, I was more likely to listen to, say, to hear what they had to say. And all they said was, hey, here's how God changed my life. He can do that for you too. And I was like, I want it. I want Jesus. I want the Jesus that you know. Not because you wrote the book of Romans. 
although that's a pretty good book, but because you've loved me in a practical way, you've met my need, why did you do that? And sometimes people will get a practical need met and they'll go, why in the world would you even consider doing something for me? You don't even know me. You know, Paul, why would you write this letter to us? You don't even know us. And he says later on, he says, because I'm a debtor to all people because of what Christ has done for me. So let's finish up with these last few, uh, uh, few verses. Verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as also among the other Gentiles. He says, verse 14, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. The barbarians were just anybody that didn't speak Greek. Doesn't mean that they were like the guy on the Geico commercial, that, you know, so easy a caveman can do it. It meant they called barbarians the ones that didn't sound like them. When they spoke, it sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so they called them barbarians. You know, the guys that can't talk, they got a lisp. You know, they didn't speak Greek, and so to them, they were uneducated. But he says, I'm a debtor to everyone, to the Greek or to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the barbarians, both to those who are wise and to those who are unwise. There's nobody that Jesus Christ didn't die for. So as much as is in me, verse 15, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And then he says something, and uh, I'll hit more on it next week because I'm running short on time. He wants them to know that, hey, I haven't been to you guys yet, but it's not because I'm ashamed. Verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, those who are justified shall live by faith. He says the theme of this book here is that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God, not of man. It's the power of God to all those who believe that they can be saved. Salvation is a free gift of God. No one can boast about it. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can make it happen on their own. It's a free gift of God. God chose to impart to us salvation. It's for the Jew and also for the Greek. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the life of Christ, God's righteousness is revealed. And we're gonna find out that Paul's gonna basically put everybody on a level playing field from this point to about the end of chapter three. He's gonna say, you think you're righteous? Well, let's look at God's righteousness and see if you measure up because we can't compare ourselves with other people. We have to compare our righteousness to God's righteousness and in the righteousness of God, we find out that we're all lacking. He'll come to the conclusion at Romans chapter three, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there are some people that it's obvious they're sinners. They're out killing people. They're out committing adultery. They're you know, at whatever place that you think is the worst thing. Maybe they're in the gay pride parade proving that they are prideful in all that they believe and think that everybody else is a bigot. There are some people that are obvious sinners. So he'll deal with them and say, hey, the wrath of God will be revealed to them. God gets the final word. And then he'll talk about the moral person, the person who 
uh, doesn't, you know, smoke, doesn't chew, doesn't go with girls who do, you know, uh, the, all the people that on the outside look, you know, subdivision people, you know, the people that have everything together, you got the white picket fence and living the American dream. And he's going to say, hey, they have sin too. And God doesn't judge sin based on what it looks like. All sin sends us to hell. All sin brings forth death. That's the judgment. So he's going to lay everybody on a level playing field and say, there's no one outside the judgment of God. But he says there, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation has three parts. God saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. And he saves us from the presence of sin. Salvation happens. It's a one-time thing. Nobody can boast in it. God gives it to us freely, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. But then he saves us from the power of sin. He's constantly giving us power to say no to sin. Now, there are many Christians who walk around powerless because they're not willing to realize, or maybe no one's taught them, that you're saved, but you still got to keep going. Salvation is a daily decision to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, to be willing to say yes to God and no to sin. And then... So he delivers us from the penalty of sin. That's the beginning. That's being born again. He delivers us from the power of sin. And then he delivers us from the presence of sin. And that will not happen until we see him face to face and we're in heaven. This world, we will experience tribulation. But there's going to come a day where we'll be in his presence and he will deliver us from the presence of sin. That's one of the beautiful things about heaven. Sin will be no more. And then one day he will set a kingdom down. That kingdom that he's building up by faith, not by sight, will one day come down to earth and he'll set up his kingdom. He will rule and reign and we will reign with him. But until then, we share it with everybody we can so that they can come with us. So that they're not separated from God for eternity and judgment. So Paul, writing this letter, sometimes it gets complicated. We'll try to go at it the best way we can. But he lays out everything that he would want to say to them if, just in case he doesn't get to go. You ever think about that? People uh, are worried about what's going to happen when they die. And so they, they write out a last will and testament. In case I don't get to tell you these things, here's what I would have told you. So Paul writes down to everyone who will read it, to everyone who will listen, these are the things I would have told you if I could have come. So Paul recognizes that one day he will die. And in the meantime, he's preparing for that by making sure that he imparts to everyone who's a believer and to everyone who will be a believer one day, here's what you need to know. Here's the basic tenets of Christian life. So as we begin the book and as we start to dig in next week, don't be overwhelmed by his run-on sentences or his big words. We'll get through it together because this will be a challenge for me too. I tend to overcomplicate things. But what God wants to show us is that faith isn't complicated. It's just taking God's word and being ser taking it seriously. So as we read through it, hopefully you'll be encouraged like was his desire for writing. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to have these, uh, these things that the early Christians wrote down. Thank you that they didn't just say them and, and forget them but they wrote them down so not only the people in Rome would be able to receive them, 
but so that also we here almost 2,000 years later, we get to read them, we get to take of the spiritual fruit, and we get to teach it to others if we learn it. And so, Father, help us to dive in headlong, have a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. And Lord, fill us with your spirit. The things that we're going to learn not only are going to be good for us, but everyone who hears us. And so, Lord, help us not to, uh, to receive it and walk away, but to really consider, Lord, what does this mean for me? How should my life look now that I'm a child of God? And Lord, as we take those steps, as we learn little by little, and as you take ground in our lives, Lord, may others see the change in us and may they want what we have. May we desire to use those spiritual gifts you've given us to encourage and build up others. Lord, I love you and I thank you for saving me. I pray that as we study this book, Lord, that it would be more than just a Bible study, but that it would impact our lives so that when we go out into the world, others would meet face-to-face with your Son in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song.